American tourists to the USSR assumed there'd be little chance to mingle with Soviet people. And forget about walking the streets. You'd only see what the communists wanted to show you. Touring the USSR was nothing more than a front row seat at a big show. I don't know about you, but I once held all the same assumptions. That real Soviet life was hidden under layers upon layers of propaganda. And if you wanted to see the truth of Soviet life, then avoid officials and seek out regular people. And seeking out regular Soviet people did three things. First, it allowed Americans to uncover the authentic Russian, or the real Russia. Second, Soviet people were a window into the legitimacy of the Soviet system, and a barometer for how long it would last. If they were dissatisfied, then the system might collapse. Finally, regular Soviet people reaffirmed the supposed superiority of American liberal democracy and capitalism, and confirmed the view that Soviet socialism was an imposed and unnatural system. Teddy Rowe, too, sought out regular Soviet citizens during his travels. Like other Americans before and after, he contrasted the regular Ivans against Soviet officials. The former held the key to unlock the mysteries behind the Iron Curtain. The latter were mere marionettes performing Cold War plot lines. Really what these official talks amounted to was a a nice period, shaking hands and all that sort of thing, and then immediately they would launch into a, into your Negro problem. Uh, why do you have so many unemployed people? Why are you in Vietnam, etc.? And I just didn't want to waste my time doing that. The ideal thing would have been somebody take me into their home. So what did Teddy find when he peeked behind the Iron Curtain? Did he get into people's homes? What were their lives like during so-called developed socialism? I'm Sean Guillory, your guide on this journey, and this is Teddy Goes to the USSR, Episode 5, Teddy Meets the Soviet People. Act 1, The Velvet Covering. Churchill once said, Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And if we look back With that turn of phrase, Churchill captured Russia's enduring allure and the myth of it as a mysterious country. And the notion of Russia as an enigma has stuck since. It's one of the most cliché of clichés. It's true, the mysteriousness of the Soviet Union made it attractive. And going there during the Cold War was not visiting just any country. It was dropping behind enemy lines into an exotic world, a kind of bizarro world, where up was downed and left was right. The snags visitors hit along the way only added to the adventure. Teddy admitted that his limited Russian created hurdles. Still, it wasn't just the language. Something else lurked under what he called a velvet covering. Teddy says that even with good Russian, it would have run into the same barriers. They had a sort of a velvet covering. They would hide everything. And of course, I did have guides from time to time, and they said it most innocently. I'm, I'm sure there wasn't a political bone in their body where they would say, uh, everything is perfect here. I was struck by Teddy's suspicions that there was something more behind the curtain, that people wore masks to hide their true faces. So I asked Dina Feinberg about this belief that Soviet life was hidden and the American urge to expose it. 
You've heard from Dina throughout the series. So there's, a, there's an understanding that real daily life in the Soviet Union is something that is hidden. It turns out Teddy's skepticism was part of a bigger American trope. Soviet propaganda presented itself as a paradise, and Americans were obsessed with pointing out the obvious, that, guess what, it wasn't. There is a strain that would probably cover most of the period from 53 until the collapse of the Soviet Union, is to expose, and I'm deliberate in using that word, to expose the truth about what life in the Soviet Union is really like. Dina says that American journalists took this as their mission. Each generation exposed Soviet life to their readers, yet they still thought that Soviet reality needed exposure. And the hidden, exposed dynamic turned on and on. And they use these metaphors of parting and veiling, exploring, discovering. Every few years you have, you know, an account that ostensibly unwraps the riddle, parts the carton, whatever the the going metaphor of the day. The most important metaphors, I guess, of American encounter with the Soviet Union is Potomkin Village. The Potomkin Village is a myth that goes all the way back to Catherine the Great. The story is, is that her advisor slash lover, Prince Grigory Potomkin, supposedly erected village facades to impress the Empress as she toured eastern Ukraine. The myth that the Potomkin village has endured since. It means the attempt to erect a veneer to cover up the ugliness of reality. This metaphor really governs Russians' relations with the West and Russia's interactions with the West for 300 years and has immense potency and it's kind of very recognizable. And so many American journalists who arrived to the Soviet Union, they tend to see Potomkin Village in anything. So they suspect everything they see as a Potomkin Village. You could imagine how this colored Americans' interactions with Soviet people, as Dina explains. So when they go and see Soviet officials, they are afraid that they're being thrown sand into their eyes and they're being told something that is not true and that there is like a massive cover-up and that they won't be told the real state of things and why are we not discussing with us the problems, only why are you showing us the good things. This hidden exposed Soviet reality cycle connected to a larger quest to get a sense of how long the Soviet system would endure. Because surely buried in all the communist rubbish were little proto-Americans trying to climb out. And Dina adds, all this dovetailed with another question. Will the Russians ever become like us? These are implicit questions that they always kind of there on the surface or really close to the surface in American reporting from the Soviet Union. All of which brings me back to Teddy. So I asked him, if everything was hidden and Soviet officials were constantly trying to pull the wool over your eyes, were you concerned, cautious, afraid? I had no illusions. I didn't, I told myself they'll be into my luggage, they will be following me on the street, they will be talking to people that I just talked to accidentally, or was it accidental? But you never knew when you talked to somebody whether they were planted for mm -hmm. you, you didn't know whether the person who was following me, and I don't say that I was followed all the time, maybe in just in strategic uh, places, I couldn't help wondering, what if the idea that Soviet reality was hidden was just a case of cultural crossed wires, or a different idea of what represented the exemplars of a society? 
Americans associated Soviet reality with the problems and dissatisfactions. People who veered from the party line, or better, criticized it, were considered more genuine. On the flip side, Soviet hosts had a different agenda. They wanted to show the achievements and the best of their society. So what were the Soviets trying to say in all this performance? Foreign visitors had a huge symbolic power in the eyes of Soviet citizens. To a considerable degree, the Soviet project as an ideological project, it was drawing its legitimacy from this sort of external approval. That's Alexei Gulubyov. He's a historian at the University of Houston and author of The Things of Life, Materiality in Late Soviet Russia. And that creates a very powerful and very interesting effective economy of pride and shame. Because in order to be legitimized, you have to perform a good individual or collective Soviet body for these outsiders' gigs. Only the best can perform proper Sovietness when so many foreigners are around. But what Alexei calls an effective economy, or simply how emotions are connected to certain behaviors and contradictions. The reverse side of this is that affect of pride can very quickly transform into an affect of shame when you fail to perform properly. And that is why in the Soviet gloss, there is a phrase that many people would recognize immediately. And this phrase is Nipozorsi peridinostrancimi. It's very straightforward. So uh, it means that don't make us feel ashamed when you behave like this and there are foreigners around. Alexei gave me an illustrative example of how this shame worked, bubblegum. Now, Soviet industry didn't make bubblegum, and Americans love passing out this quintessentially American product to clamoring Soviet schoolchildren. It was a win-win. The kids got gum, and the Americans reaffirmed their superiority. It's as if each chomp squirted little doses of freedom. Beach that peppermint gum, the pep pep peppiest one. And when uh, local school officials learn about this sort of mass phenomenon, especially in Leningrad, in, uh, in Tallinn, in Moscow, and places where you have more foreign visitors, they start working with children and explaining them that, you see, uh, we're ashamed of you. What you're doing is shameful. And they are, by asking, by begging for bubblegum, they feel proper Soviet citizens ashamed for their country because this is a country that does not produce bubblegum. So in many ways, the big show wasn't so much about hiding Soviet reality, but as you might find in many societies, it was about showing outsiders the best you have to offer. To say, look, we aren't so different than you, and we have some things that are perhaps better. So if you have people in your group who do not behave properly, you are breaking this very important symbolic form of why socialism is better than capitalism, of why we are an advanced society. 
and that is why there is such um, such so many concerns when it comes to foreign tourists in the Soviet Union. It's not just because they can see something that they can use against us. It is also because what they can see would question the assertion that we are a modern society. Act two, typical Lev. Ordinarily, the Russian is a genial person. Yet regardless of place and occasion, he will slip abruptly into fits of sadness and melancholy. He can be friendly and trusting one moment and rabidly suspicious of foreigners the next. Teddy wanted to meet regular people and steer clear of officials. And it was unlikely he was going to succeed if he was stuck with in-tourist guides. So I wondered how much of his time was just wandering the streets alone. What about your freedom of movement? Were you able to walk the streets? Were you able to go into shops, talk to people? What about that kind of? Everything I did was that, the latter. I can count practically on the fingers of one hand true uh, formal meetings. So I'll say I better, better extend that to two hands, but two hands between five and ten meetings on an official basis over a three-month period is not very much. Teddy quickly scored some regular people in his first week, a married couple, Lev and Irina. Teddy met Lev on a train to Leningrad. Lev gave Teddy his phone number and urged him to ring the next morning. Lev turned out to be a gold mine of information about Soviet life. I, I would say that one of the greatest strokes of luck that I had on my Soviet trip was meeting Lev. I hadn't been in the country for a week and I was in somebody's home, which is what I wanted. Lev was an engineer. He didn't represent the, the party or anything like that. In fact, I don't think he was a party member. I, to this day, I will never know whether he appeared in a seat beside me by accident or whether he was placed there. But he was always the consummate gentleman. Lev's wife, Irina, was a principal of a middle school. His wife was a delightful person, and I got to meet their cat, Stjopka, and she had questions from me. That is, Irina, not Stjopka. About whether American cats did what Stjopka did, which would be go out on the seventh floor balcony and pass through the railing and walk on the narrow, very narrow concrete strip. And I said, I'm sure that our cats do the same thing. Lev and Arena were typical Soviet middle class, educated, cultured, with good jobs and good salaries. And most of the people Teddy met were more or less similar. Class structured Soviet society, despite ideological dreams to the contrary. So let's dwell on class a bit. Class was tricky. It wasn't based on wealth, nor was class just about profession, education, consumption, or leisure. Class was these plus, and this was decisive, your personal networks. You see, people recognize each other, and they have this class feeling. I asked Alexei Golubyov to explain. So it, it is still about economic capital, only economic capital manifests itself not in the amount of rubles on in your bank account, but it is more fluid. 
Personal networks, or blot, produce an economy of favors. The elaborate chain of scratch my back and I'll scratch yours upset traditional class hierarchies. Trading personal connections, not money, got you better access to goods and services. Blot pried open doors. You might remember from episode three how blot worked in consumption. And the more people you knew in well-placed positions, the better your networks and the better you lived. There is also cultural capital because if you take engineers, engineers earn less than workers, but then engineers have more cultural capital. This cultural capital was education, intellectual and technical talents, and their usefulness to the state, but also taste and how you spent your free time. Since consumption was limited, it is hard to differentiate your social position through consumption of daily objects, but consumption of your free time is how you demarcate your class position in the social fabric of late socialism. Lev and Irina lived in a seven-floor Leningrad apartment typical of a Soviet middle-class couple. It had been built only a couple of years before. It was of modest size, but you and I probably would have been kicking the walls. But, but not only not only did they were in a fairly new building, but they had a supermarket in the building. And supermarkets were pretty rare in those days. Uh, you had to go to a milk store, you had to go to a bread store, you had to, and especially for women who, you know, who worked all day and then had to run around and have a child at home, no wonder. Uh, as one of my guides told me, you know, when a man marries, he gets a companion. When a woman marries, she gets a second job. The apartment was one of the most cherished things in late socialism. Housing in the USSR was a complicated matter. The shortages were acute, especially after World War II. Conditions and access to single-family apartments improved in the 1960s, but there was hardly a surplus. The Soviet apartment was fairly comfortable, yet quite modest by American standards. So I asked Alexei Golubyov to paint a general picture of the Soviet apartment. The apartment that you get is uh, a kind of apartment that you could rent in Toronto. Tiny kitchen, kind of small bedrooms, well, moderately large living room. Low ceilings, narrow doorways, and corridors. Rooms were often multifunctional. The main room could be the dining room by day and a bedroom by night. A two-room apartment would average about the size of two semi-trailers, and renting something like this in Toronto today would cost about $2,100 a month. In New York City, over three grand a month. This is your apartment. Once you got this apartment, it is, even if you have extra children, it is very hard to get a bigger apartment. So sharing a room for siblings is an absolute norm. Sharing a room between children and grandparents is quite a norm. Apartments were primarily doled out by waiting list. Most urban families received an apartment through their job or municipal councils. And if you were on an employer's list, you were basically bound to the job. Changing jobs kicked you off. And he didn't want that because, Alexei says, you could spend a long time sharing a dorm room with a coworker. Even if you are married, and the difference uh, if you are married is that you don't share your room, 
if you are unmarried, you actually spend the first several years uh, in a dormitory for single workers. So as a young professional, as an engineer or as a doctor, there is a good chance that you spend the first years of your professional life sharing a room with uh, another male or female co-worker. If your employer is small and doesn't have this pool, but rather delegates your place in the line to local municipality, uh, this is the situation when you could live in a dormitory for 25 years. Class mattered here. Managerial staff got theirs first. That left a long wait for the majority of people. And the lists weren't just first come, first served either. A number of categories allowed you to jump the line. If you were a war veteran or the immediate family of one, disabled veterans by a court decision, or you were a career military. An evening at Lev and Arena's was followed by an invitation to show Teddy around the city. They met the next morning. Lev and Arena showed Teddy Leningrad's sites, the World War II monument on Mars Field, a walk around the Nieva, the Peter and Paul Fortress, and the Kazan Cathedral. In all, they walked about eight miles. They accompanied me while I viewed two uh, Soviet weddings. Very, very interesting, very interesting. The next day, Irina invited Teddy to her school. No part of the school was left to the imagination. The cafeteria, the gym, even the bathrooms. Irina whisked Teddy around every classroom to introduce her special guest to staff, teachers, and students alike. Teachers inquired about American schools. They compared the similarities and differences to their Soviet counterparts. Even a small group of seventh graders showed off their limited English. They asked if they could write Teddy in America. They showed me the school from top to bottom. They had the entire cast out, including a Tatar fellow who was the janitor. And of course, he was always bringing vodka. They talked me into having a small tumbler. The instant that it was down, here was Sasha, the Tatar, saying, Nalieva, Nalieva, on the left side for balance. Lev and Arena were just as curious about Teddy's life in the U.S. as Teddy was about theirs in the USSR. They had lots of questions about, about me and life in the United States, but not, not the kind of envious anything that would suggest that they may have been planted. They, they didn't lack for anything, and they never... I ran into many people saying, boy, if I could just go to the United States, I would really love to go there, etc. I didn't get that either. I got nice people, but, but they, they, did, they dedicated a lot of time to me, so if they wanted to know something about me to report to authorities, they certainly had the opportunity. We were both the winners. This issue about housing and standard of living and all the hoops involved raises a question. What was the average day of a Soviet citizen? Remember, Lev was an engineer and Irina a school principal. And since we're talking about everyday life, I figured now is a good time to step back further and paint a picture of the imaginary worker. I asked Alexei to break it down for us. Здравствуйте, дорогие друзья! Продолжаем наши уроки русского языка. Тема сегодняшнего урока – рабочий день. Let's recreate 
a day from that imaginary worker's life. And to start with, we have to choose, we're coming back to the question of gender, if it is a he or a she, because despite all the pronouncements of gender equality, Soviet women have this second shift. There is a social pressure that this is their duty, like childcare, like uh, household chores. This also meant dropping younger kids off at daycare or school and picking them up. So if you are a worker, you the first question is how you get to work. As you heard in episode three, cars were few and far between, but most Soviet cities had good public transportation. If you say a white collar employee, people could actually work for three or four hours and would spend the rest of uh, their work time smoking, having small chat. It was quite normal that you could actually leave in the middle of a work day to go shopping. And you are back home, let's say at 7 p.m. And so you have four hours of free time. This is your typical experience of a work day. Hanging out with Lev in Arena was a highlight of Teddy's trip and a unique one. But for the most part, there really wasn't, you just didn't get past the facade. It wasn't all their fault, but would like to have had many of the Leningrad engineer experiences because they would have been more open. But I did learn how to, to drink with my right hand only. <laughs> Teddy had other encounters throughout his travels, but none were as intimate as with Lev and Arena. They all had a few constants, though. Politics were a touchy issue, though people engaged. Soviet people were generally curious about American life, though, not unlike Teddy, they often refracted what they learned through their own information and ideological lenses. Teddy pointed to the difficulty of semantics, where American and Soviet understandings often flew right past each other. And hospitality was on full display. Even though Teddy had close encounters with Soviet people, he remained suspicious, especially if his companions didn't raise any complaints. Take, for example, a young couple he met at the opera in Kiev. And they invited me to their place. They were Alfred and Svetlana Mikhailyuk. Alfred was a chemist, a party member, and a graduate student. Svetlana was a graduate student too, but Teddy didn't note her discipline. The couple lived in a five-story apartment building in Kiev. Teddy didn't see the whole apartment, but surmised it was modest, considering the living room was bigger than three king-size mattresses. Following custom, an elaborate spread of food and drink decorated the dining table. We talked about everything and anything. Like the relative openness of their societies, the role of the Communist Party in Alfred's membership, and the claim that all Soviet people were united, despite differences. Teddy and Alfred agreed on very little, except that JFK was a great president. But never once did he ever admit any kind of uh, blemish on the Soviet system. Now, was he taught to do that? Was he prepped for the meeting? Who knows? Teddy was taken aback by Alfred's certainty. Was he a true believer? Or maybe he was reluctant to voice his doubts. Was it just miscommunication over terms like open, democracy, etc.? Or, Teddy wondered, perhaps the walls had ears. Teddy returned to his hotel at about 1 a.m. with indigestion from all the rich food and drink in his normally cast iron stomach. He puked to feel better, but it was worth it. The Mikhail Yuk's hospitality was really great, and the food was delicious. 
But in all, Teddy was a kind of anthropologist trying to grasp the mentality of his Soviet hosts. Given the prevalence of ideology and the struggle between the two nations, how the American and Soviet systems stacked up against each other informed many of his conversations. And for the most part, the guides weren't used to talking to anybody about political things, but my political questions were not the kind that would, would entrap anybody. Teddy would ask things like, what is the Communist Party? Who ran the country? Did the people have a say? Some guy from Novosti Press telling me, well, we're just a social club, <laughs> that sort of thing. As my Russian got better and I learned to be a little more bold, etc., I started asking other people. Though Teddy's guides generally avoided politics, sometimes it would unexpectedly come up, like the following encounter he had on his first day in Kyiv. Her name was Vera, and I had already talked to her about the closed nature even of the Soviet Union and uh, that tourists did not get what they wanted. And she says, what? You can go anywhere. Just tell me where you want to go. And I said, fine. I want to go to Babi Yar. Babi Yar is a ravine in Kiev where the Nazis executed more than 33,000 Jews in September 1941. There was no official commemoration of these killing fields in the USSR until Yevgeny Yevchichenko's 1961 poem. No monument stands over Babi Yar, a drop sheer as a crude gravestone. I am afraid today I am as old in years as all the Jewish people. Now I see. For the most part, unless the town was really small, every tour started with a car tour. And the chauffeur was obviously, I mean, from the, from the very beginning, a wizened little old guy who drove as innocent as he could be, which you know very well. He was chosen by KGB, and he was co chosen to watch the, tour, the uh, tourist guides and watch the tourists, too. And so when I said, Bobby Yar, she turned to the, uh, the chauffeur and said, Bobby Yar, let's go there. You know you're not supposed to go there. You're <laughs> going to get in trouble. But I said, let's go. So we went. All anti-Semites must hate me now as a Jew. For that reason, I am a true. They find the government did put one monument. It was just a chunk of granite, probably not higher than the table your equipment is sitting on, etc. I don't know if they've done anything since. Inevitably, World War II and Stalin came up. Vera told Teddy that her father died in the war. And he would write in his letters home, I'm fighting for Comrade Stalin, that he was putting his life on the line for Stalin, and therefore she was not going to forsake Stalin. Vera's support for Stalin was unwavering. She explained that Stalin had to be judged like Ivan the Terrible, not for their horrible acts, but for their accomplishments. Teddy, pointing to the arrests, executions, and famine, fell flat. Though she admitted that she normally didn't get sucked into such conversations with tourists. But that was the closest that I came to an ideologue, and I'm talking about that she, she supported Stalin.
three specters of 68. According to reports coming in from Czechoslovakia, the situation in the country on the whole remains normal. As was reported, anti-socialist forces are trying to disrupt normal life in the country and create complications aimed at... One of the things that amazes me in looking back at my trip to the Soviet Union in 1968 was how badly they were running the country, the desperate hunger for consumer goods, the desperate hunger to be involved in the direction of their own country, the continual propaganda by the, the leaders of the Soviet Union and about how they were going to destroy us. And yet, against that backdrop, the Soviet Union was crumbling from within. Teddy's comments are, of course, in hindsight. Predicting the demise of the Soviet Union in 1968 requires otherworldly clairvoyance. Yet Teddy is tapping into an axiom that the late 1960s was the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. In one of our conversations, Teddy gave a quick summary of Soviet history leading to stagnation. He told me the USSR was a corrupt system from the beginning, from the top down. It started with a revolution, corrupted by a crazy man named Stalin, followed by the unpredictability of a guy named Khrushchev, and then it came to Brezhnev. It became practically boring, and the, the, the true age of corruption really started under him. I asked him to elaborate. First, there was the false promise of socialism. The massive way that they were manipulated and told, just keep waiting, 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 the good times are coming. Uh, our triumph is inevitable. Second, the endless number of rules resulting in cynicism. You had to wink at the rules constantly. And I would imagine that produced a lot of, of very widespread cynicism in the people themselves. You simply could not to conform. Uh, they had rules for everything. And if they needed to stop you from doing something, they would cite the rule. Otherwise, they would be participating in the cover-up. And lastly, like we opened this episode, life in the USSR was governed by a system Teddy called artificial. So artificial that in order to really survive, you had to use the black market. You had to. You had to cut corners, etc. And every time you cut corners in a, in a situation like that, you're in violation of the law. And that carries with it a certain anxiety, uh, knowing that at any moment somebody could swoop down and provide evidence that, that, that you got these, that these tickets from somebody to the Bolshoi and you sold them for a profit, which you're not supposed to do, etc. Two notions govern everyday life in the Brezhnev era, social stability and silent conformism. The two were the heart of the Brezhnev social contract, and most Soviet citizens were fine with that. I asked Don Raleigh about the Brezhnev social contract. You might remember him from episode one and three. Don is a professor emeritus of Russian history at the University of North Carolina. He's finishing up a biography of Brezhnev. He told me that the Brezhnev leadership made a conscious effort to bring more people of working class backgrounds into the party and to really make sure that their wishes and desires were, were satisfied. So they had this core of, of people who were very pro-regime, didn't question. This becomes even more the case in the 1970s. And this was really noticeable. So they were better dressed. They were better fed. Housing spread like crazy. 
this was a, a time of continually growing wages, growing benefits, longer vacations that were subsidized. And the black crude elixir made it all possible. That allowed the Soviet Union to create this illusion of constantly improving living standards and all that sort of mask the, the lack of fundamental systemic change that uh, would result ultimately uh, in Petersburg. At the same time, Brezhnev eventually personified the flip side of stability, crisis. On the one hand, Raleigh says, that we'd have a whole different picture of Brezhnev if he had resigned in the mid-1970s, when apparently he wanted to. Uh, between 1964 and the mid-70s, he was an extraordinarily accomplished leader, uh, totally committed to the cause of peace, for instance. But on the other hand, Brezhnev and the other geriatrics in the Soviet leadership represented the ossified, rickety system. It was in dire need of new blood and new thinking. Brezhnev's health took a sharp downward turn in the latter half of the 1970s. He was declared clinically dead, but then resuscitated after a stroke in 1976. Public mockery of Brezhnev went on overdrive afterwards, as television became a norm in Soviet households. Brezhnev had to be shown on television three times more than any leader. Well, that's fine when you're robust and you're traveling around the world and delivering speeches and being a little bit of a clown and working the crowd. He could do that really well. When your teeth are slipping and you're, and you're slurring your speech and you can't remember where you are and people are watching this on television, you know, the, the authority evaporated. Despite the stability of the Brezhnev years, there was also a growing sense of malaise in Soviet society. Even some of the elite recognized that the Soviet leadership refused to face reality. Brezhnev and his ilk just didn't want to address the serious problems afflicting the country. The ritual incantations of progress Teddy mentioned increased the alienation and, yes, cynicism towards developed socialism. As I noted earlier, the Soviet leadership, and Brezhnev especially, personified this sense of decline. They were old and conservative. They weren't against reform per se, it just had to be gradual, technocratic, and incremental. Developed socialism only needed tweaks, not overhauls. Still, it's not surprising that Teddy looked for signs of imminent change in the USSR. It was 1968, after all. Young people were challenging the system in the West and in the East. Certainly, the USSR wasn't immune. Teddy heard expectations of change in his conversations with Soviet young people. On a couple of occasions, I had young people saying, this will change. The Prague Spring inspired such hopes. And I would say, well, how long do you think this would take? Well, up to, up to 15 years. And they felt that uh, this can't continue. And sooner or later, all of our brothers and sisters will rise up with us. But uh, it turned out pretty much that that is what happened. The youth revolt of 1968 confirmed the belief that young people were future-oriented, that they possessed some window into tomorrow and that they eagerly desired to jump through it. I asked Dina Feinberg about how American journalists reported on Soviet youth. She told me they painted a Janus face, oriented towards the West, but too feeble to rebel against the system. Part of the youth trope is part of the trope about consumption and fascination with Western objects. In the stories about how Soviets are interested in Western stuff, youth would be primary actors. And together with this, there's another story about Soviet youth that is being a generation of weaklings. American journalists saw Soviet youth as weak in two senses, physically and ideologically. 
They weren't war-hardened like their Stalinist parents and grandparents, nor were they true believers in Soviet ideology. Most were indifferent to it. If they meet a young person who professes to be sincerely committed to socialist ideas, that young person would be usually written off as brainwashed or propagandist. But everybody else is not interested, not a real socialist, but also too weak to rebel against the system. Dina says that journalists engaged in negative parallels. They say, oh, look, like youth around the world is rebelling and doing all these exciting things. These guys not doing much. So unlike elsewhere in 1968, the Soviet system was just hobbling along. No reform, no dynamism, and no direction. American journalists, I think, invent the idea of stagnation way before Gorbachev. And so they talk about, like, this is a very stable system. These young people are not challenging the system. This is unlikely to be over anytime soon. At the same time, young people produced anxiety in the Soviet authorities. It's kind of a dual problem around Soviet youth in the sense that the Soviet authorities are forever nervous, agitated, however you want to, to phrase this. That's Robert Hornsby. He's a historian at the University of Leeds and author of Protest, Reform and Repression in the Soviet Union under Nikita Khrushchev. They're concerned that youth are naive and that they're going to be victims of cunning Western propaganda. And they're right, of course, because Soviet youth are interested in, in elements of what the West has to offer. Don Raleigh was 21 years old when he went to the Soviet Union in the early 1970s. And of course, he gravitated toward hanging out with Soviet youth. People with full mind mingle. Then we talked about youth culture. We talked about what was going on in the world. We talked about music. Music was probably the music and film, pop culture, American fashion, jeans. These were all the craze there. And um, people wanted to have fun. They wanted to have drink, drink vodka, dance, listen to Western music. <laughs> It's quite an exciting time. But the other side of the coin is that Soviet youth are also the best advert for the Soviet system. The long piece of the post-war years paid off. Soviet young people were better educated, living better, more urban, more cosmopolitan, and more informed than previous generations. They were no less modern than young people throughout the capitalist world. The recipients of the best the Soviet system had to offer uh, in terms of the best schools. This was the generation that didn't experience any traumas like war or uh, state-sponsored revolutions of any sort, right? So their living standard got progressively better. They pampered. But remember, this was also 1968. 68 results in time, beginning of a tectonic shift in attitudes that's taking place. Mass protests spanned the Cold War divide. Mao's Cultural Revolution rocked China, the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, and the quagmire of Vietnam further eroded American innocence. The beating of student protesters in Warsaw, Poland in March 68 sparked a political crisis. But of all the dramatic events in 1968, Czechoslovakia casted the largest shadow in the USSR. My sense is that they don't have a great deal of connection to events in the West, certainly the, the student events in Western Europe. Soviet intellectuals tuning into protests in the West were mostly horrified. They saw the new left's glorification of Mao, Lenin, Trotsky, and even in some cases Stalin, as naive to the realities of really existing socialism. Western leftists' embrace of anti-imperialist violence in South Asia and Latin America was similarly repugnant. And they don't really understand each other. 
that you know the the kind of French and West Germans they're railing against consumerism and 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 sort of you know bourgeois ideals and and some of them are kind of flirting with Maoism and so on and the Czechs and Slovaks are looking at them like they're crazy like they're spoiled kids they're saying well we'd quite like some of that hollow consumerism actually. Um, and if you think Maoism is the way forwards, you're crazy. I suspect the news would be the same from a Soviet view. Indeed, one Soviet critic concluded after visiting West Germany that Western radicals and Soviet intellectuals were on different trains going in opposite directions. Not so with the Prague Spring. The Soviet intelligentsia and reform-minded officials closely followed events in Czechoslovakia. By 68, Czechoslovak newspapers are on sale in Soviet cities. Certainly in parts of Ukraine, you can pick up Czechoslovak radio. There are many thousands of Czechoslovak students in the Soviet Union and Soviet students there. There are tens of thousands of tourists every year. So the, the Soviet Union can't be isolated from what's going on in Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia revived the spirit of the thaw, the period after Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin, when censorship was loosened and reform was on the agenda. At this point, would-be Soviet dissidents believed the Prague Spring provided a template for transforming Soviet society within the system. On the whole, they wanted to improve socialism, not destroy it, and Czechoslovakia provided a much-needed inoculation against the creeping disillusionment and cynicism within Soviet intellectual circles. At first, Soviet authorities responded with cautious apprehension. Softliners hoped to manage the situation and allow the Czechs some leeway as long as socialism remained intact. They tied the fate of reform in the Czech lands with that of the USSR. Soviet hardliners feared spillover into the Soviet Union, particularly through Ukraine and the Eastern Bloc. But initially, no side won out as Brezhnev remained indecisive. The decision to invade Czechoslovakia in August 68 ruined all that. Good evening. Once again, the Soviet Union, demonstrating a colossal contempt for the opinion of mankind, has resorted to brute force to keep a satellite nation under control. Russian tanks and infantry... Now, the invasion of Czechoslovakia, of course, is the big issue here. Most expressed their, be their bewilderment, but looking back on their lives, saw it as a, a landmark event. Many Soviet citizens were shocked, dismayed, and confused by the invasion. However, most rallied behind the Soviet flag, public and private displays of Soviet patriotism boomed, as did xenophobic anxieties. Those in Saratov pretty much accepted the government's version. Uh, in Moscow, you had some who were shocked by it, horrified by it. Many, though, fell for the Soviet official interpretation. But the bottom line is, they all seem to realize that they simply needed to know more. You know, they began to understand things about their country that was not necessarily good. You know, they realized they're just not learning everything. They're not getting the truth. So if you look at the 68 and then fast forward to the invasion of Afghanistan 10 years later, by then everyone's cynical. Inside the Soviet Union, this is not as big a year as, say, 56 was. And there's a kind of a collision of hopes and aspirations and expectations. And, and my sense is that 1968 doesn't have these kind of disparate elements which kind of come together and explode in the same way. Except for a small rally of seven protesters on Red Square on August 25, 1968, no active opposition materialized in the USSR. 
тираны, И я прославлял свободу Под пламенные тираны. Мы пили вино, как воду, And this is partly, I think, because the authorities had done quite a good job of um, sort of pacifying the student body in the meantime. This is partly through concessions, such as, you know, improving conditions um, where students live and study, improving resources and so on. And partly it's also, you know, making absolutely clear what the new rules of the game are, that, you know, you'll be expelled for this, that and the other. Soviet authorities tightened censorship and ideological conformity. The KGB stepped up its so-called prophylactic interviews with suspected troublemakers. The blow to the Soviet intelligentsia was formidable. Their self-image as a socially engaged and morally potent class collapsed, as did the belief that freedom could exist within a Soviet framework. You know, there, there was an impulse for reform, really from 64 to 68, but after the Prague Spring and the suppression of the reform movement there, the serious reform of that nature then, I think, no longer had a, a chance. You see, I don't believe there was a general attitude towards... Uh, definitely, it was hard to express dissent. There were dissidents, of course, but for the absolute majority of Soviet society, they were entirely marginal. Now, Soviet authorities never enjoyed unquestioned trust from the population. And whatever trust that did exist increasingly eroded over the 1970s. But the rigid, performative, and emptiness of Soviet ideology is too simple an explanation for the atrophy of authority. I think we still have to find a compelling explanation of why it is happening. It's not just political authority. There's also an increased amount of skepticism in Soviet society in regard to uh, the scientific authority that manifests itself in the interest to all things paranormal and sort of uh, pseudoscientific, like horoscopes and uh, UFOs and things like that. So what I think you see is an increased epistemological diversity that in some ways the Soviet state provoked itself. Like elsewhere, a diversification of identities and expression marked Soviet society in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Binaries broke down. For and against, public and private, official and unofficial, increasingly blurred. Grand narratives splintered. From a belief in universal equality to the inevitable triumph of communism. It's, it's certainly not quite so simple as kind of for or against. Um, and it, it really depends a great deal on who you talk to about this. So you can, you can talk to all kinds of people and ask them about their youth, and they kind of look at you with a, you know, again, a, a raised eyebrow and think, you know, everybody knows it was awful. And some people did, you know, lead lives with the Soviet system intervened in positively, and they remain forever grateful to them. There's a, a huge spectrum of ideas around what was right and wrong with the system. People retreated into simple personal concerns and pleasures. There was little expectation or even desire, except in marginal circles, for sweeping change. In a mimic of the Brezhnev leadership, many people only wanted incremental improvements to buttress their daily and family lives. When you read accounts from the time, certainly what they tend to talk about mostly are, are kind of quite 
small things that they, you know, it's it's material, it's people wanting, you know, better childcare provision. Accommodation is always something that people talk about, better provision of, you know, even basic stuff. I don't think people are expecting to be driving around in Mercedes anytime soon, but they do want, you know, better provision of basic stuff. And for the Soviet middle classes, at least, a growing convergence with their counterparts on the other side of the Iron Curtain. And what we now call globalization was not particular to geography, ideology, or economic system. Soviet urban settings would give you pretty much same institutions and modern techniques of governance that Western societies had. In the urban settings, especially in bigger cities, you kind of had the experience of welfare state, which meant that you were educated, you probably was part of a nuclear family, you were subject to social and geographic mobility. And that what makes Soviet urbanite Soviet, but that is also quintessentially modern, right? All of this resulted in psychological changes that placed the individual at the center. I describe it in terms of barely visible or at least barely verbalized, yet fundamental social change from below. And one particular example is that during stagnation, we observe the emergence of new biopolitics. Biopolitics is the political management of people's bodies, behaviors, and morals at the individual and societal levels. Alexei says that the new Soviet biopolitics of the late 1960s and 1970s was not the collectivism of earlier periods. It reveals itself in such things as the proliferation of self-help and self-care literature. Self-help literature is usually linked with things like how to make friends and influence people or the power of positive thinking. Basically, ways to govern yourself to better navigate the demands of capitalism. The genre of self-help literature in the Soviet context emerged in the late 1960s. And in the, throughout the 1970s, there were books published on uh, psychotherapeutic self-help and medical care in hundreds of thousands and some probably in millions of copies. Books like Vladimir Levy's The Art of Being Yourself and The Art of Being Different, or the popular works of the Soviet sexologist Igor Kuhn. There is a, an increased feeling of social alienation in the late uh, Soviet context that explains why these genres of self-help and self-care are so popular. What I see is increased expectations of what it means to be a kind of successful and good, uh, a good citizen on both sides of the Iron Curtain. And so you're expected to be successful in your professional life, in your family life, right? You're expected to be uh, a perfect father and mother. You are supposed to be successful in your sexual life. And when you fail, you turn to self-help literature. And this is part of global modernity. So this is not Soviet or American or Swedish. Teddy Rose travels around the USSR were unique, to say the least. To wrap up our conversations, I asked him what reflections he had on his trip from a half century ago. I guess that I was heartened by the reception that I had and the feeling that if things were different, our relationship would be different. And I didn't 
I didn't try to criticize. I would just what I tried to talk about was the political part and how we had two nations that didn't understand each other and how are we going to avoid pushing the wrong button at the wrong time if we don't understand each other. I had a pretty good idea of what I was dealing with. I could see the major, major and minor flaws, all of which contributed to the collapse of the Soviet Union because the world was changing quickly around them. I sensed that. And with the advent of satellites to beam radio programs down to the Soviet Union, they couldn't hide all kinds of stuff. Next time on Teddy Goes to the USSR, Cold War Colored Glasses. So you've heard five episodes about Teddy's extraordinary trip to the Soviet Union in 1968. Now, what to make of all of this? In the sixth and final episode, Leah Goldman joins me to talk about some of the issues that the documentary raises about tourism, American views of the USSR, the Cold War, and Soviet life. Teddy Goes to the USSR is written, edited, and produced by Sean Guillory. Thanks to Dina Feinberg, Alexei Grubyov, Robert Hornsby, and Donald Raleigh for their participation. And special thanks to Teddy Rowe for sharing his story, diary, and photographs. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Elliot Holmes. Funding for Teddy Goes to the USSR was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Russian East European and Eurasian Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh, and monthly patrons of the SRP podcast. If you want to learn more about Teddy's trip and the Soviet Union, go to the series website at teddy2ussr.com. And if you're enjoying Teddy Goes to the USSR, please consider becoming a patron of the SRB podcast so we can do more audio narrative like this. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash blog. And you can follow Teddy Goes to the USSR on your favorite podcast app.